welcome back to the Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, joined by our host and star of the show, Jim Rooney. This is Toe the Rubber, episode 443 on our network. I hope you enjoyed our show yesterday with Lee Elder, Super Scout, the Lord of the Rings. Today's show is the first show of a triple header Thursday. We usually have three on Thursday. Jim's show will be followed up by She Gone with L.A. Dodger Gavin Lux, followed by Man on Second Joe Frazero with high school baseball coaching legend in Broward County, Todd Fitzgerald. So I hope you enjoy our Thursday here. Before we get going and bring Jim on, we got to talk about the youth today. I I saw the show notes a little bit about analytics and youth baseball. I'm excited to to get into that a lot. But just want to thank our sponsors, Jaw Bats. RVG at checkout will get you a discount on a brand new maple bat. My son Tanner's using his M110 model, lefty and righty, loves it. Fry hit a double in fantasy camp with his, so he likes his too. I think he has a C271. Um, also want to thank our two two newer sponsors, Bonet. Check them out. They're the longest standing net in, in, uh, in baseball, uh, tremendously durable. Uh, also have some training items as well, baseballs, training balls, bats. And then Kinetic Arm. Uh, if you guys heard the interview last Friday, if you haven't, go back and listen to it. Jason Collin with Kinetic Arm may have the item that every kid needs that doesn't want to have an arm injury. Uh, he, he's, in, he's into the science. He's into the baseball. Listen to that. Also check that that item out, and we'll be sending more out there as well. Thank you to Millions, our marketing partner. This week you'll be able to pick up our merchandise, hats, sweatshirts, uh, T-shirts, sweatpants, you name it. We're going to have it up there for you with our new logo. If you haven't seen it already, check that logo out. And to the uh, audience, 67,000 and growing, appreciate your support. Thank you for the nomination for the two pod, baseball podcasts of the year awards. We're excited about being nominated. And with that, Jim, welcome back to your show today on a sunny Thursday morning, at least here in Myrtle. Yeah, it's not bad here up, up in the Charlotte metro area. But uh, good morning, Dave, and uh, welcome everybody to the podcast. Yeah, we got a nice shout out on uh, Facebook this morning with a uh, probably our most loyal listener, Brad Thede, up there in, in uh cold country in Minnesota. He, uh, former, former, uh, loves catching, uh, son's a really good catcher and uh, he's a longtime umpire, uh, minor league umpire, college umpire, and uh, a big supporter of the show. I actually did a spotlight on him way, way back, uh, because of his, uh, his, um, his umpiring prowess had a lot of good insight. We weren't representing the umpires well, but he was listening to, uh, to the Schaefer report, Jeff Schaefer, who was a friend of the show and former teammate of yours and a guest on your show. And, couple other shows for us and uh he put a big shout out to us said i get my baseball fix every week with with uh with chafe and and uh and put uh our show put my name dave dagasino obviously comes up real voices of the game so um appreciate the the shout out there so you guys are doing a great job reaching a lot of people and uh excited about this one today this one's right up my alley yeah i mean you know there's a lot of topics we can talk about but um one of the things that came to mind this week is that, and I'm, I might jump a, uh, jump a little all over the place here because it's kind of like all interrelated and depends on uh, which way you want to look at it. But let me, let me, I think I know how to start you because you and I have talked about this and I, I want you to, you've got a lot of good insight into this. You know, you do a tremendous job of separating youth development mentally, physically, and emotionally from adolescent to adult. And I think that's the biggest problem with sports. Um, you know, a youth baseball player 
has all this stuff in front of them that an adult has the, the major training, the analytics, the regular development, how to hold a ball, how to throw a ball, how to run properly. Um, and again, if I'm starting in the wrong point, just kick it to the curb and, and run with it. But, uh, I think that's probably the, a, a, a safe place to go is separating those things for the, for the audience. Well, along those lines, I'll start here then. Um, the key in youth development, and, and this, this goes up, you know, just like the podcast says, development for all ages. This goes right up the ladder to, you know, even the big leagues because it happens all the time. It happens with teachers in school, coaches, instructors, um, little league coaches, travel ball coaches. We're all uh, susceptible to this. And it reminds me of a story, you see. And this story relates to... Um, in basic youth development for all ages, right? It's not the coach's job, the teacher's job, or the instructor's job to place a ceiling on the individual they're working with. Now, this happens through individual personal biases or, or let's get the example of analytics. We decide that um, everybody's gone to a travel ball tryout. Next thing you know, they receive an email, and here's a breakdown of what we saw in the tryout. And the majority of it isn't necessarily an evaluation based on what the coach, what the coach's opinion is. It's evaluation based on bat speed, exit velocity, launch angle, pitcher's throwing velocity, spin rate, and my question there is that, are we now seeing analytics at all levels placing a ceiling on individual development? So the story goes like this. I believe I was in the fourth grade and living up in the uh, suburbs of New York City. And through New York State at that time, and I, I'm sure other states did it also, but the, the state the state exams or or your your general exams um, were called um, Iowa tests, and this could have been national at the time also. And and the Iowa tests were like, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic. I remember those. You know, comprehension, and and you would get a um, you'd get a breakdown in each um, category. Um, you know, somewhat similar to later on when you were applying to colleges and you took the SATs and there was the verbal and the written, you know, uh, and the math. Um, so you would fill out your name, you know, your name, your grade, uh, things like that, you know, as far as on the first page information. And on the bottom of that first page, you were supposed to write three things that you wanted to be when you grew up. I guess they were thinking, that, you know, the purpose of why you're going to school. You, you want to be a doctor? Or you want to be a lawyer? You know, fireman, policeman? And in my day, your mindset was that, you know, you didn't really know of any jobs other than that. You're in fourth grade. You know, so. you know teacher, I knew teacher, doctor, lawyer, fireman, police officer, professional athlete. Yeah, that's businessman, that's right. So, yeah, that's, that's all you, you knew of. You didn't necessarily know of athletic trainers and physical therapists and all these things. So I looked at the question and I wrote down 
professional baseball player. And uh, I didn't put anyone in the second or third. I just put the first one, professional baseball player. And when I handed in my test, when I was all done, the teacher, who was a very good teacher and a very nice person, she looked uh, to see if I filled out the first page correctly, so the information was correctly, and she reminds me, oh, Jimmy, please, you have to write down a real job. And I said, what do you mean? That's a job. That's what I want to be when I grow up. And she said, no, you have to write something, and she goes down the list. So it's not that I was annoyed, but I was just a little confused. So I went home, and I told my mom, you know, what had happened, and you know, and she said, okay, don't worry about it. You're, you, you know, you didn't do anything wrong. Everything's fine. So later on, whenever it was a month later or whatever, parent teacher conferences, everything went well in the conferences and everything. And when my mother came to the teacher that uh, had asked, told me that I couldn't write professional baseball player, my mom simply asked her, why are, you, why are you attempting to put a ceiling or limits on any child's dreams? And as I got older, she related to me that story. And so when I look at being a coach, a teacher, or an instructor, or even a parent, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what someone's going to be when they grow up. It's, it's like a... A travel ball coach saying to you, uh, oh, yeah, I could see you down in the road, your son being a, a good third baseman. I said, he's nine years old. <laughs> so I think that we have to stay out of the, the habit of uh, placing a ceiling, even if it was not necessarily with evil intention. It was just sometimes that's the way we relate to different people. That's the way the system's set up. That's dead. You got you got me on. A, that's when I read yours. I had th- you hit th- two or three hot topics in my daily world, and I I agree with you. I, and I had a teacher that did just the opposite for me. I had a sixth grade teacher who played at George Washington University basketball small school. We had to do the same thing, and I felt obligated to write a couple extra choices down there. I wrote two choices at the top: professional basketball and professional baseball player. I only got one of those, but under the second and third choices, when I got my paper back, he crossed them out. And he said, if you have second options, you won't go at this one hard enough. And uh, just the opposite of that. that yeah. teacher. And um, he was seen as off the wall as a teacher. Everybody loved him, though. Uh, Bob Goodwin was his name. And um, but th- that always stuck with me that he did just the opposite. And I think our systems are set up that way, unfortunately, where and I don't blame it on teachers, really. I mean, it's it's how they're. You know, it's the it's the environment, it's the culture of, of it, and it breeds mediocrity more often than not, and, and really pushes down the genius in people. And right. That's, that's kind of what, uh, not to overuse genius. People get a neg, you know, they don't know how to handle that word, but to comp to become proficient at what you became proficient in at the level you became proficient in it, you had some genius in you, and you cultivated that genius. So, I'm yeah. glad your mom stuck up for you. Well, you know what you, you triggered, and it, this could be a little bit off topic, but um, you triggered our show here, right? Yeah, you triggered me. Um, so during my years of um, coaching in in Europe, a year in France, and a year in uh, two years in Bologna, Italy, 
you didn't necessarily, I wasn't fluent in either language. Eventually I, I got pretty good in Italian, but, um, you just wanted to get your hand on anything in English to read, you know, to pass some of the time. Uh, you weren't going to sit there and watch TV. You didn't necessarily understand unless it was like a, a soccer match or a rugby match or even a basketball game. But, um, so you, you would just start reading, you know, whatever, um, I used to, in, in Bologna, right near the university, there was one of these uh, franchise Guinness pubs, and I would go in there for the sole purpose. Before it opened, they would let me in, and we would exchange books or newspapers or whatever we had because all the staff was from uh, from Dublin. And uh, it was just something, and it's how you pass your time. And then you sit down and you read. So one thing led me to where eventually, over that three-year period, I read all of um, – the uh, psychologist Carl Jung's works. And uh, he had an interesting theory about uh, society and how society uh, self-regulates itself, how it controls. So for a society to grow, in his words, for a society to grow, it has to have um, individual intellect, individual creativity, individual performance, it's the, it's the individuals that drive the growth within the society in order for that society to be successful. However, the individuals still have to remain part of the group, part of the society. And that's, um, that's difficult because if you think of, if we use your word, you know, the, the levels of genius of the people that come up with original thought and creative ideas and, and, they don't necessarily sometimes want to be part of a group, let alone a, you know, a larger group called a society. So what society does is um, it allows those individuals, those, those uh, shining stars, all right, they allow them to become icons, the brightest stars in the solar system. But the human, because of human nature and its frailties and vulnerabilities, cannot function as an icon and it quickly becomes a shooting star. And then the society doesn't have to worry about them anymore. They've served their purpose. So I relate that all through history to, you know, depends on what you want to think of as right or wrong. And everybody would have their own opinions and, and choices. But uh, maybe Richard Nixon and Watergate. Uh, maybe Pete Rose and gambling. It's a way that... These people were great, and then all of a sudden they fall off the map because yeah. of something. We have, we have a list of those guys, and that's part of our homeschool. We got Pete, Mike, Mike Tyson. They're, they're so great in one area, and whether it's society or them, or they, that yin and the yang, they have to be fallible in another area. I often think, too, society sometimes when, when they see somebody great, like you said, it's a shooting star. It's, it's, it's fun for them in a moment, but then it reminds them of uh, maybe how, how – uh, average they are w without, you know, calling them average. And rather than compete, they try to pick and poke and pull apart. And, uh, yes. yeah. It's and, and, you know, Dave, even, even if they are, um, you know, successful and creative and, and are on that path of, 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 you know, creating something pretty good. It's a, it's a subtle reminder. Hey, get in line, get in line, get in a group. You got to be part of the society. And now, now think of everything that we do nowadays, whether it be our, you know, not to really get off subject here, but whether it's our political systems and all this, it's always, you got to choose one. 
you got to be here. You got to be here. Okay. Um, you know, there's even great literature out there and, 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 uh, um, works in psychology that talk about group dynamics and different things. And it's always about, um, you know, the group, uh, the, um, the sum is greater than the parts because we work together. Now there, there's some positive and there's truth to that, but that's completely far off the track of, of, um, original thought and creativity. Yep. Um, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm glad you took it that way. If there's an audience of two today, I'm okay with that on this topic because it's uh, I, I got a big smile on my face right now. So, so it, brings, it brings me to the question for today, and we'll uh, we'll discuss it. But it's um, does analytical models place a ceiling on performance and or youth development? And uh, I'm going to take it as if you look at the evolution of analytics or, or sabermetrics um, in baseball, originally they were used as tools. And the tools assisted in um, putting together a ball club. Okay. Uh, if you want to say money ball, that was a creation of the writer. But in essence, what occurred was Billy Bean. Um, who I've met him, but I know people that know him very well. I know um, someone very close to me is very close to Billy Bean. He's a smart guy. Um, and he used the tools in order to put together a small market baseball club when Giambi and those guys left in free agency because he didn't have the money to replace them. Um, the model in baseball up until that time was, okay, you just lost Jason Giambi. Now we got to go out and either develop another Jason Giambi or sign one in free agency. Well, he didn't have the ability to do that. So he did, uh, you know, all of a sudden, uh, I, I forget the guy. I, he's got a long last name. But all of a sudden the match stares. And, uh, but the other guy was, people looked and they were like, it was even in the movie. That's the guy that's going to play first. Uh, oh, the kid that was a catcher. And they, yeah, uh, Hatterberg. Hatterberg, right? And, it um, and it was, you know, it was on-base percentage and this and different like that. Well, <clears throat> what happens is that, obviously, in all sports, they talk about in the NFL and NBA every, everywhere, you know, copycat leagues and stuff like that. Well, what happens is um, I have a, I have a, what I call a fun phrase. Most of the times through history, it's not the, it's not the savior or the Messiah or the originator of the original thought that, that messes things up. It's usually their disciples in one way or another. So now you have a whole offshoot of uh, Billy Bean disciples and they start spreading around. And with the help of Peter Gammons, um, they start getting interviewed for GM jobs and they become GMs. Right. We don't have to go into detail who they are right now, but, all of a sudden, the tool or tools overcome the process and becomes the master of the decision-making. And for me, it's similar to when we talk about conditioning in, in youth, youth baseball, um, all the way up the ladder. And I say that we can't, try, we can't train the stabilizing muscles to be the prime movers. So what we've done is... We've taken tools, 
analytical models, tools. Every organization has one. They put them all together and they create their model, okay? Whether they're going to use it in the draft or in development or in putting together the big league club. So now they've put importance on certain things. And slowly the tools, as we've seen, become the master of how we do things. They're no longer tools. They're the, they're the stabilizers of muscles that have now become the prime movers. Um, whether it's in, in, your, in your physiology, your human physiology, or whether it's in uh, putting together baseball or developing baseball players, when the stabilizers become the prime movers, it's nothing but disaster. Um, so you look at when we used to, and I'll just take a picture for example here. When we used to uh, scout and evaluate a pitcher, you know, they were talking about their five tools and somebody might add a sixth tool like fastball command. So, you know, for the most part, <clears throat> you would be looking at fastball velocity. You can go down a list. And there were things that improved, you know, with the fastball velocity. So you had fastball velocity, fastball movement. Uh, fastball control, the ability to throw strikes, or overall control, the ability to throw strikes with all your pitches, and uh, fastball command. Then you would have your 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 breaking ball. So I'll put it as a curveball and your changeup. And then there'd be another one that would be called pitchability. You know, how, can the guy pitch? And each one of those um, areas was sometimes weighted within the process, and then you would get uh, what they would call an overall OFP, which was just a number in order to put a guy in the system and where he fits on the list, okay? It was a ranking. It was a ranking system. Um, whether you agree with that system or not, it went into depth about who that pitcher is. It described to you what he could do. And then when you take fastball command or overall control and pitchability into it, it further paints the picture of who that player is, who that pitcher is. Now, if we were to use current analytical models to break down what a good fastball is and put a number on it, that makes sense to me. Technology can do that a whole lot better. So if we want to all of a sudden say the fastball is based more on spin rate, uh, perceived velocity, uh, movement, command, and extension out front, so deception, hey, that's great. But what has happened is, as we've said for the, with the chase of velocity, all of a sudden... All of those things that we evaluated are now coming down to how hard does this guy throw? Whether it's in the recruiting process, in the evaluation process for travel teams or high school teams, college recruiting, and in the baseball draft, how hard does this guy throw? So the overemphasis on that tool, it's almost gotten to the point that if we were going to say 100%, right? So the velocity is now like 90 5% weighted in the equation, and all the others are 5%. Whereas before, it might have been a, uh, I'll even give a 50, 60% velocity, and then the other 40%, 40%, right? 
But when you uh, when you look at that, think about the ceiling now. It's placed upon guys like um, Catfish Hunter, Mike Cuellar, Dave McNally, Rob Roberts, um, Whitey Ford, um, Greg Maddox. Or maybe guys that threw one pitch, Mariano Rivera. Doesn't throw a fastball. Cutters, Sparky Lyle. Now, the list goes on and on and on of guys that were turned out to be great major league pitchers for different reasons besides the things that these models are telling you now. So in essence, these models are placing a ceiling because it's reducing, uh, for lack of a better term, your target audience you know, of where you're going to draft from, where you're going to evaluate from, who you're going to promote, and who ends up in the big leagues. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, and ultimately development, because that old adage, if you put if you put something in a bottle, they're going to take the shape of that bottle eventually. And it really exactly. destroys the genius we talked about earlier in the show. Right. So the thing is, is that when you remove... The, whole, the human thought process, whether you want to call it intuition, experience, et cetera, from the decision-making process, you now eliminate the ability of, you eliminate the ability to go outside the specific realm or environment that you're, you're, you're looking at, okay? And here's what happens then in, in this um, evolution of uh, analytics. The analytic portion starts to grow in importance. And now a majority of the development people or the scouts at the initiation of this process, they don't know what analytics are. And the the natural human fear of the unknown, then the um, analytics people become, to the baseball people, adversarial. And vice versa. It's a two-way street. The analytic people, we've discussed in prior podcasts, they didn't go to they didn't go four years of Harvard and study analytics or this or whatever, and uh, and come out to be an area scout. No, that's just how you get your foot in the door. You know, they didn't come to be the you know the guy that takes video on the development side. No, that's how to get your foot in the door. So they're always looking to move up. Now you have two different camps, if you would say. And even on the baseball side, those guys are still looking to move up also. But their mindset was more of um, developing themselves to be quality in what they do. And then, you know, see if they can get promoted. It reminds me of my old high school baseball team. The baseball team was made up of two different um, middle schools. And we we didn't like each other, even though we were friends. But on the baseball field, we competed like crazy, not only in the little leagues, town against town, and not only in the um, uh, summer ball when you got into high school. Babe Ruth, Big Boy, American Legion, whatever you want to call it. Or even if you go on the American Legion team, you're now competing at guy from the guy from the next town 
the next middle school. And then what happens, it all culminates that we get together in high school and we're all trying out for the same team. So you think of those two branches, they're trying and they're fighting to get ahead and to move ahead. And then that's why, for the most part, things remain separate in a majority of the organizations. Yeah. yeah and everybody gets that, again, that mentality of, and it's a whole separate psychological trip where they're trying to put their tag on something um, in order to stay relevant in whatever world they're trying to climb the ladder. And I, you know, the, the analytics in the youth world, it scares me at the major league level, but at the youth world, it's frightening. And I, I'm involved in, in both of those worlds in some capacity. I do have my, I have an advanced degree in analytics um, from an Ivy school. And I, 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 I really get scared by how they, how it's being used out there and people bang on analytics, but it's the people wielding the sword much like with strength conditioning and all that stuff. And I always, I have a little creed I say to myself before I even start doing analytics. And I offer, I offer this to everybody else. I'm, I'll, I'll share one with you. And it's, it goes, uh, I didn't create the world. I'm being asked to evaluate and it does not exist to satisfy my equations. Really simple. Um, where I think a lot of times what we talk about, people will have that end and that reverse scientific method. They'll work backwards to try to satisfy whatever, you know, fancy little math problem they want to get across that day. No, I agreed. Agreed. And and it even happens if, you know, um, people do that even if they're not even using analytics. I mean, a lot of people are attempting to prove their point or prove themselves right, especially in this world of baseball development. Everybody's out there selling something. Now, you can't blame them. They're all trying to make a living. But, um, but the interesting thing about this self-fulfilling prophecy Right. If we eliminate the scouting, evaluation, and development process to a certain logarithm, we narrow our pool of players. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Right, that came to mind. Don Manningly and Keith Hernandez, two of the greatest field and first basemen in the history of baseball. Quality baseball players, winners. I mean, you could argue that for whatever it was, six-year period, Manningly was uh, the best player in baseball dominated the era. Neither of them had any power at the beginning of their development. For his whole career, Keith Hernandez didn't eventually hit for a lot of power, but he brought so many other things to the table that are not measured by numbers. Right? Um, Grit being one of them. Understanding of how to play the game another. The ability to be a leader and to motivate guys on his team. Manningly, I remember facing Manningly in the minor leagues. He never pulled the ball. And he was a very good hitter. I mean, you you were thinking when you first saw Don Manningly that um, he was going to evolve into, you know, Rod Carew or Wade Boggs. That's the type of player he was. That's the type of hitter he was. And next thing you know, later in his development, he develops the ability to pull the ball. And now he's playing in Yankee Stadium with the short porch. And one year, I think he hit about 35 home runs, maybe in his MVP season. Um, So if we were to look at 
these are first basemen's left-handed. They don't have any power. They don't fit the mold. We, we're not, right? And the fact is, is that they were both first basemen from the start. A lot of analytic models don't even put first basemen's in the pool. They think that we're going for the we're going for the best athlete, and then the way he matures, and something's going to happen. He's not going to be able to play the outfield or this or that. So he's going. We just put him at first. So. Let's cross those two guys off the board, right? The next one. The next one for me is very interesting because I know the backstory. Cal Ripken Jr. So initially you would think, yeah, I mean, not many 6'5 shortstops. But it goes much deeper than that. Cal Ripken, his first year out of high school, so he's probably 18 years old, playing rookie ball for the Bluefield Orioles in the Appalachian League. I don't know the exact number. I didn't look it up, but the story goes that he hit, <clears throat> played played uh, shortstop and hit under 200 to where the Oriole organization, because he was a right-handed pitcher in high school, wanted to convert him to a pitcher. Now, we do realize that Cal Ripken Sr., his dad, was uh, basically the guy, when they talk about the Oriole away in the minor leagues, he had a lot to do with the way the Orioles played the game of baseball. And he said, no, no, he's not a pitcher. He's a, short, he's a shortstop. He's a position player. So they send him back out there, maybe the next year in A-ball in Miami, and I guess he starts to do a little bit better because they keep him. But now he eventually gets to Charlotte, double A. And they say, wow, he's really big. So they move him to third base. In fact, Cal once um, gave my younger brother, Mike, his glove, his third baseman's glove, when they converted him to a third baseman in double A. All right. So now basically we're saying, and, and this is not necessarily with uh, analytics, but it's about, you know, placing a ceiling on things. At first, we don't think he's a good enough hitter, so we're going to say he's going to make a pitcher. Somebody intercedes, and he gets another shot at being a position player, gets to double A. Well, he's too big to be a shortstop, so we move him to third base. And now he goes up the ladder, and Earl Weaver basically – um, they have Mark Belanger playing shortstop. Phenomenal fielder, not a very good hitter. And the story goes that Weaver's like, I'm I'm sick and tired of having a shortstop that can't hit. And he brings Cal Ripken Jr. to the big leagues and puts him in a shortstop. If anything along the way had a model to say the opposite, that would not have happened. Okay, this is this is human beings. First, first the dad who was uh, pretty influential within the organization, saying no, you, you know, we'll give him more time being a position player. He's a position player. To then the big league manager saying, "I'm tired of having weak hitting shortstop. You're playing shortstop," and then he goes into the Hall of Fame as a shortstop, rookie of the year. Everybody knows what Cal Ripken Jr. did. Right. So once again, there was no ceiling. 
there was no box in which we've developed the perfect player based upon, you know, what his exit velocity is or, or spin rate or velocity or things like that. Now, there's, a, there's an interesting side story to the Kyle Ripken one. Kyle Ripken's roommate, his first year in Bluefield, was an outfielder from Stanton, Virginia, named Larry Sheets. Okay, lefty hitter. Loved his swing. Yes, sir. And uh, Larry's son is in the big leagues. Gavin went to Wake Forest, first-round pick of the White Sox. Played in the big leagues last year with the White Sox. Right? So Larry Sheets at 18 years old. Now, I wasn't there, you know, so this is just a part of the story. Um, I, he nearly wins the Triple Crown. But he um, isn't very familiar with the lifestyle off the field of baseball players. Um, hadn't really experienced that. Didn't necessarily agree with it. Um, and he was only 18 years old. There's a lot of newness, you know, when you're away from home and th things like that. And um, he decides that baseball is not his thing. And he... he goes home and some of the particulars uh, probably Will George would, would know the full details of the story because I think he was part of that whole process. Um, but they convinced Larry to come back and uh, he's doing pretty good because he's a very good hitter and he's very strong, but he decides to go home again. So, in 1982, in 1981, minor league baseball, professional baseball, returns to Hagerstown, Maryland after a long, I mean, I'm going to say since the 50s maybe, but I could be wrong. I just used to hear the stories of, you know, the last time they had professional baseball in Hagerstown, Maryland, Willie Mays played there. Um, so... Hagerstown has entered into the Carolina League as a co-op, which means that multiple organizations would send three or four players apiece to the team. And the manager uh, of the club is from the Orioles, is Grady Little. And lo and behold, they win the championship. So I don't know if I don't know if there's a record book for it or anything, but to think about uh a manager having the ability to bring three or four players from different organizations together and make a team and they win the championship. I wouldn't think that the, each organization was necessarily sending their top prospects <laughs> to play on the co-op team and he wins the championship. So the Orioles, there's all the different uh, racial tension and problems in Miami during this period of time. And even though they still held spring training down there, they decide to leave Miami in the Florida State League and go to uh, Hagerstown, Maryland in the Carolina League. So in 82, it's going to be the first year of Baltimore Oriole baseball in Hagerstown, Maryland. And if I remember correctly, we're only talking about an hour and a half drive northwest of uh, Baltimore. So it was very important to put a winning ball club in Hagerstown that year, 1982. 
So a lot of us, not just myself, but there's a lot of us that um, were playing in double A AA and triple A all spring training and doing very well and thinking we had a chance of uh, at least going to double A. And uh, we were all told uh, as we were getting close to spring train and the spring training that Grady Little would be the manager and we were going there. And one of the main reasons was we wanted to have a good club because the first year of Philly ball being back there. So one of my good friends still to this day and uh, roommates, Tony Arnold, All-American at the University of Texas, right-handed pitcher. When he was an underclassman, I believe, he played in the old uh, Virginia League, Summer League in college for a team in Stanton, Virginia. And he met Larry Sheets. And I guess uh, besides just being acquaintances, they might have become friends. Larry was in high school. So we had a big first baseman, our other roommate, big first baseman, left-handed power hitter at the University of Florida, Dave Falcone, who I'm pretty sure in two years at University of Florida had the home run record until uh, uh, Matt Laporta uh, broke it. Right, who played there through uh, four years. So Tony Arnold has this idea. He's going to call Larry Sheets and convince him to come back. Because if we had Sheets hitting third and Falcone hitting fourth, two big-time left-handed power hitters, and right field in Hagerstown, even though it was a double wall, double cinder block wall, uh, and center field was like a triple wall, Center field was easily maybe 30, 35 feet tall, and the rest of the field was probably uh, in the 20s at least. But I marked it off one day. It was only about 270 down the right field line. Uh, it was marked 290, but it was only about 270. That that would be some, some ball club we would have, and we had some other pretty good baseball players on that team. Uh-huh. So Tony Arnold starts a campaign of calling Larry Sheets and on the phone. And one thing leads to another. And Larry's in spring training. And sure enough, he shows up. He's batting third in Hagerstown. And the combination of those two, they, they, they struck fear into all the different pitchers around the league's hearts. Now just think about something. It would have been very easily in that situation to place a ceiling on Larry Sheets thinking, uh, ah, this guy doesn't want to play. This guy's not going to play. And they would have closed the door on him, traded him, given up, released him, whatever. But they didn't. And a crazy story like I just told, Larry Sheets becomes a major leaguer, starts a couple years in right field, is a DH, later goes to Japan, makes some pretty good money, and uh, – the rest is history. So now yeah. there's three examples, well, actually four, of situations where, for whatever reason, whether it be a personal bias and we place the ceiling on someone's development, somebody's opinion, or what an analytical model says to us. Well, we're, I think it's you make a great point. And that's why, whether it's analytics, especially analytics, because people believe that they're um, – they're objective and they're not. They're as fallible as the person who made the formula or the criteria. 
So before people apply that, that's why I think they're so dangerous sometimes because they don't do any type of audit on it to to play for those biases, to play for those, um, you know, to, to let people know, hey, this is not objective. The person who made it has biases, therefore the formula has biases. So I always caution people when doing that. You had another example of, of Pete Alonzo too. To me, this is this is the classic one um, because I can – I can tell the story firsthand because I was there during this situation. So Pete Alonzo, right-handed power hitter, we all know him, the polar bear, played at the University of Florida. And in his draft year, we all know he's a big right-handed power hitter, and he can hit the ball a long way, and he's he's a pretty good baseball player. Um, but what happened was, near the end of the regular season, I believe he, it's that he hurt his wrist. So he doesn't play for a few weeks. Might even been like four or five weeks. And now there's question whether he's going to play in the SEC tournament in uh, Hoover, Alabama. And most years the SEC's got some pretty good pitching. I mean, they got good ball clubs, but there's some pretty good pitching. And University of Florida goes in, and sure enough, and we're all, everybody's at the SEC tournament. I mean, it is packed with easily hundreds and hundreds of scouts and general managers and all the higher-up guys. It could be a 1,000 for, for all I know, but it is packed. And um, Pete Alonzo ends up playing. Now, I tried to look up the exact number, but I couldn't find it uh, on the Internet. <coughs> Excuse me. In that week of play against some of the top pitching in the country, hadn't played a game in at least four weeks, uh, Pete goes off and he's hitting home runs left and right. So in my mind, I'm thinking, listen, this guy's flat out just a good hitter. You, you don't not hit for that period of time and then start taking some BP so that the medical guy's clear so you can play and then go up against the top pitching in the country and just go off. And I'm not talking about getting hits. I'm talking about hitting home runs. If it was five or six for the week, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. But he's putting on a show. So we, from the SEC, we go back into the draft room. And it wasn't, believe me, it wasn't just this draft room. In every draft room around baseball, maybe they had the conversation, maybe they didn't. But teams that worked off analytical models were not going to draft Pete Alonso in the first round. The model just states you don't draft right-handed college power-hitting first basemen in the first round. The history shows that they've all basically bombed. Now, there was a couple that didn't, but they're thought about as, you know, the anomalies, so we can't really base our decision-making off of uh, an anomaly to the model. And I totally understand it, because if you're the director of scouting, and you draft, and you're working in an analytical model, and you draft Pete Alonzo in the first round, even if you don't draft him in the first round, if you bring it up as a topic of discussion, 
not only the analytic guys, but your analytically based assistant general manager and general manager are not going to look too kindly on you bringing that up. Because now we've added uh, a discussion. Now, you're not going to win the discussion, you know, so you're not going to draft them. So why even bring it up and then be looked upon on the negative side of the equation, if you would say. My head's going to explode on that one. Yeah. So Pete lasts. In 2016, he lasts to the second round. Okay. Now, just for the sake of the story, and because, you know, the way my mind works, and I'm not shy, I go in private to the director of scouting, and I say, Pete Alonso is the best hitter in this draft. And that's who we should draft. And I realize that we can't. And, you know, but it, and we, ha- and he goes, I know, Jim, but we, you know, and it was a very good conversation. Okay. No problems. All right. But <clears throat> whether it was me, even if you want to say, if we want to go a little far fetched and say it was in my ego, but, it was me getting it documented that I had put it in my report and I just wanted the uh, director of scouting to know that I knew that he couldn't pick them and he couldn't even bring them up. But in private, we had the conversation. Well, in 2019, so three years later, Pete Alonso is the rookie of the year. He's a three-time all-star, two-time home run derby winner. I say four plus seasons because one season, I guess, was uh, the maybe the pandemic, whatever. But he, he only played in like 40, 50 games. He has a career OPS plus of 136. And he hits a home run every 13.2 at bats. Um, and, and now, the, you know, the argument's going to go. <clears throat> now that Stern's moved over there, you know, are the Mets... They're, they're not going to probably come out and say that they're in a rebuild, but that's the way these models run. So they're in a rebuild. Um, and now the question is, you know, uh, Alonzo moves over to, to Boris, you know, are they going to resign him? You know, and whether they resign him or not, someone will. And then it goes into the old Boris saying that, uh, you know, when a guy becomes first time free agent, if he signs for some pretty good money, it tells you what his uh, worth is as a major league baseball player. Um, so if we take in Pete Alonzo, we know it's a documented instant of analytical models saying you cannot pick this guy in the first round. Okay. So that's where it is. Whereas the others, it's more of a hypothetical conversation that they don't fit the mold and people did attempt to place, uh, ceilings on them, but you know, other people fought for them and the rest is history as far as what they've accomplished. And baseball is not the only sport that's archaic. And now you see the NFL with running backs can't be taken in the first round with the NBA, you know, look back at the, uh, we, we heard of that guy, Mike Jordan, the big coup was you can't take a guard for, as a number one pick. So they had two picks ahead of him. Although Olajuwon was a good one, still not Jordan. Sam Bowie was the other, but yeah, our, our we get, we get so pigeonholed by, and I know they're basing it on historical, but that's the bang against using only analytics and not your gut instinct or in case of a player, not their toughness there. There's other factors. You, uh, you become beholden 
to a formula and you, you lose track of your gut. You lose track of your instincts, your intuition, and it's dangerous. It is. I believe it is. I yes. think that's right. That I wish you had that. Con- I know it's, it was dangerous to have the conversation out in public. I'm glad you had it in private. But that's that's where this next step has to go because there are things like, now you, you want to discuss this because I think it's a great point. Um, I mean, there's a makeup to a guy. There's there, whatever you want to call it, toughness, resilience, grit. I mean, I know there's no magical formula you can put to that, but that's real. That stuff makes a difference. Right, right. And, and before I get to think of it this way also, Dave, whether you're looking at an analytical model or um, a political environment uh, that uh, is created that you shouldn't necessarily speak up, uh, there's, there's also other situations and environments that people put ceilings on things or well, I can't go against uh, I can't go against what the director of scouting wants because I want to keep my job and I want to uh, you know if you're working in that environment. Whereas I you know I've told about the glory days and I I was just a small part of it at the end of, of working for Toronto where it was the greatest place ever. You people would go back and forth and they'd have arguments and go back and just every and nothing was ever personal. It was just about trying to get the information on the table. And you'd have to credit, you know, whether it was uh, in my time, Gord Ash to um, Tim, Tim Wilkin, Chris Buckley, Dave Stewart. I mean, that was the environment that was created. So you never had to, like, bite your tongue. You could always, you know, express and there was never going to be a ramification. But if you're not working in that environment and there is a ramification for going against the grain. Now, whether it's analytical or baseball or a little of both, we do live in a world currently of consensus. So if we're looking to get a consensus so that we can move ahead with a decision and you're the one that's uh, going against the grain, well, then you stick out like a sore thumb. Now, did I have some of those conversations in public when it came to pitching? Yes, because... You know, that was not necessarily described as my main job, but that's the where I was looked upon. So there's where you have the stories of Devin Williams and Corbin Burns and Woodruff and Giovanni um, Gallardo and the like, you know, the likes. Um, but there's all kinds of environments out there. You know, just think about my fourth grade teacher. You can't write professional baseball player, you know. If there's situations where to go against the grain is going to uh, result in long time negativity directed in, at you, or you're continually walking around with the with the bullseye on your back, you know people are going to not attempt to do that all the time. You know, yes. but the point you brought up about grit, perseverance. Um, here's the interesting thing. We all know what that is. We all, we've all seen it. We've seen it in players and people and, you know, the guys that never give up or part of their grit allows them to be ultra prepared. Part of their grit allows them to never fall into the realm, especially for the younger guys of trying too hard, uh, being overcome with negativity. Their perseverance in the grit just doesn't allow that. There's another way that it could also be looked at, and this directly relates to development. 
the old Chinese uh, proverb, uh, you must be first willing to play the fool before you can become the master. So think about, um, think about a right-handed hitter that's learning to switch hit. When they start hitting lefty, they're, they're not going to be that good, right? Even if they're a great athlete, there's going to be a lot of work that's to be put in. How does that work get accomplished? Perseverance and grit. You're learning a new skill. All right. Maybe your hands are uh, are leaking out a little bit away from your body and your swing and you're working on getting straighter and direct to the ball. It's not going to happen overnight. How does it happen? Hard work, perseverance, grit and never letting it get you down. And that's where you see it in people. So. There was a woman named Duckworth in 2007. And. This is some of the research I could find. Her research stated that grit was a better predictor of success in IQ, talent, or socioeconomic status, emphasizing the importance of hard work and determination in achieving success. Um, that's it in a nutshell. Now, <clears throat> the last time I was involved, and granted, this was uh, 2018, so some time has passed. <clears throat> I didn't see any measure of perseverance and grit in a in a, in a logarithm based upon uh, analytical models. <clears throat> um, and yet, modern psychology states that for success in any career, it's probably the n- number one factor. It's not velocity. It's not spin rate. It's not all those things. It's about wanting to, you know, work your butt off and get the job done. And think of the environments we've created all through the development process. Uh, Travel ball has taken over. When travel ball first started, it was a huge positive. It brought together some of the best players in the country. They played, they competed. It was outstanding. Um, Now it's digressed into uh, most travel ball organizations. A lot of them have multiple teams at each age group, whether they call it the A, B, C, or D team. You know, it's not important what they publicly call it. The real thing is, is that all those lower teams are are there for for money-making purposes. A lot of them might be coached by some fathers. Uh, They're not necessarily paid coaches or anything. They're volunteers. They're working their butt off, doing the best they can, uh, but they have kids on the team. So you're a father. A natural reaction is that uh, you want to see your kid play. And then in some instances, the reason why we volunteer our time is so that I make sure that my son does play because the last team he was on, um, other dads did that to him or there were things that went on that I don't disagree with. And the environment we've created allows this to happen. So whether you run into daddy ball, as they call it, or whatever. But the question becomes, even on those levels and right up the ladder, we take an evaluation, whether it's the coach's personal opinion of what's going on or whether it's an analytical model, it doesn't really matter to me. But we take that evaluation and now we place that young player 
in a spot. He's our star, or he's our number four hitter, or he's our this. Just in doing that, we've not only placed a ceiling on them, we've placed a ceiling on everybody else on that team. Because we haven't placed enough emphasis on the only thing that matters is everybody on this team's equal, and we're here to work hard and for everybody to improve and development. You don't see a lot of that. You know, uh, you don't see a lot of that from the start of people's baseball careers all the way up to the top. You're drafted high in the draft nowadays, and the money is so unbelievably high. Do you think that the guy that signs for $7 million is going to get a chance to play in the big leagues? Well, you bet he is. Um, And this is the world we live in right now. So in a lot of areas, even though we know it's about grit and perseverance, toughness, mental toughness, getting the job done, working your butt off, putting in the time, learning new skills, always being there open and ready to learn so we can improve. You know, they used to have old saying that by the time everybody in the minor leagues got to double A, it could be the first time that they're, they realize they're not the best guy in the field. Or there's a lot of guys on a field that are equal or better to them in talent. So how do we, how do we make adjustments? How do we learn? How do we improve our motor skill development? Anything that we have to do to be successful is based on grit and perseverance and getting the job done. Yeah, a lot I don't of think guys that, have a, they have an exercise that muscle and you're right. Yeah. You see guys that just are incredible. And the question later in years, what happened to them? Why didn't they make it? And having those minor bumps and bruises early on, uh, as, as you talk about all the time on the show, mistakes identify principles that, that you need to, you know, turn them into principles to develop and move forward. Otherwise, what, what you said that that bubble that that kid de- grew up in, you hit a time in life where it's not so safe anymore, and you don't know how to use that muscle, and you're, you're done. And uh, you see that quite a bit out there. Right, right. So basically, in closing, what we're looking at is, yes, we started it with the evolution of analytics and how analytics has affected some of the things that we that we look at. But whether it's analytics or whether it's uh, personal bias or 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 teachers or instructors placing ceilings on kids and ceilings on players based upon their own individual evaluation process and what they believe in. Um, and we're not focused on development. A lot of the guys that we just talked about today, they, I mean, could you imagine if, if after his rookie year, Cal Ripken Jr. became a pitcher? I mean, one of the greatest players of all time. He broke Lou Gehrig's record. Well, I, I would like to look at the butterfly effect of that because if you think of the way shortstop play went after he became a shortstop, now you see bigger shortstops like A-Rod and Jeter. Shortstop was no longer that little guy in the middle that could field and you know maybe put the ball in play. It became a, an offensive position as well. Those guys could defend, believe me, but it became those bigger, stronger uh, athletes were put in the middle. Yeah, so exactly. Position forever. Exactly. And, uh, you know, you, you can almost say, well, there's a lot of def- defensive first basemen, you know, Gil Hodges being one. But you could say that guys like Manley and Keith Hernandez revolutionized how you looked at first base uh, and what they did and their importance. 
I mean, I mean, they were the captains of the infield. That's how good they were. And they had other great, you know, man only played with Willie Randolph, Bucky Dent, and uh, Greg Nettles, right? Um, you know, Pete Alonso, all right, it's going to be open for discussion and people are going to argue what's the next step for Pete Alonso, but you, know, you can't say that that was a bad second-round pick. And if you took him in the first round, you can't say that it was a bad pick. Uh, there's just so many of these instances where <clears throat> imagine if Don Manningly, Keith Hernandez, Cabrickman Jr., Pete Alonzo, and Larry Sheets were eliminated from the conversation because somebody had placed the ceiling. Oh, Manningly Hernandez, you don't have any power. You can't play. Cabrickman, uh, you're a pitcher. You're not a shortstop. You can't hit. Larry Sheets, uh, you went home twice. I mean, we're not taking you back. All right. That's the thing that I hope that all parents and coaches at all levels take into account that um, don't put any ceilings on anybody. Let them go out and do their thing. Let them show you some grit and perseverance that they want to go out there and get the job done. Reward those guys, okay? You don't have to elevate them over anybody else. I don't think you should elevate anybody over anybody. But give everybody an equal opportunity to prove what they're worth. And don't tell them who they are. I mean, it's pretty absurd when you think that uh, uh, on a nine-year-old uh, baseball team, whether it's travel or any other baseball team, that uh, we've pigeonholed kids into playing one position. It's crazy. Or, or I think the other way with Tanner. You know, I, I mean, you and I talk about Tanner all the time. My older son, Blue, and I... I'm on the other side. Every time they get on a team, since they were little, Blue played shortstop, Tanner caught. I didn't coach him. And I used to, you know, I never got involved with the lineups. I never got involved with the playing. But I was the parent on the other side of that saying, you know, uh, if I was asked private, like, I'd love for him to learn other spots. You know, learn second base, learn third, learn. So I would teach him that on my own. I always, I encourage parents to do stuff on their own. Everybody doesn't have the backgrounds that, that we have, but, um, I saw it from the other side, you know, it's Tanner catching. I was like, it's wonderful that he's catching. And I had one, one dad say, it's the, it's the easiest road to the big leagues. And I kind of laughed. And this was when he was eight. I said, he's eight. Yeah. He doesn't even know how to tie his shoes yet. He can switch it, but he can't tie his shoes. <laughs> and uh, we don't, uh, <laughs> there's no easy road to the big leagues. And that's not why he likes catching. <laughs> it's, it's the furthest thing from his mind. He likes catching because he loves the gear. He's good at it. He gets to command the field. There's so many other things. And I think they go out there with this, that's, part of the issue with, with, with the coaches and the parents is they go out with, they play to get recruited. They play to get signed. They play to make the big league, which is great to dream. But your message to today, loud and clear, they got to play to get better. They got to play to develop. They got to play to have fun. They got to play to make mistakes. They got to play to compete. There's so many other reasons why they should be playing right now. And if you do that every day and you're good enough, then you give yourself the opportunity to, you know, to do some of the elite things, play for your high school team, play collegially, play professionally, make the majors. You know, th those are things that come as a byproduct of what you're, you're, you're saying here. We got it backwards in this world right now and we need a, we need a major flip. Yeah. I mean, think of, I'll give you an example. Think of basketball. Okay. And the reason I'm bringing this up, because I think that we can, we can all visualize this. So, there's the stories of the basketball player who he's a freshman in high school and he's 6'2". And he's playing guard. And then by the time he's senior year, he's 
6'10". And now he goes to college and then maybe the NBA. And what everybody's talking about is how he has superior ball handling skills for a 6'10 guy. This 6'10 guy can put the ball on the floor. Or I don't know how tall Kevin Durant was when he was younger. Maybe it was just that he was slender, that he wasn't necessarily pigeonholed to play down in the post. But now you got a 6'11 guy that plays all over the court. Anthony Davis uh, with uh, with the Lakers right now. He played at Kentucky. He was exactly what you're describing. He was little, just hit a growth spurt. Now, when he went to college, he was a 6'10 guy that could handle. Uh, Scotty Pippen was the same way. He was. Yeah. He grew in college to 6'7 or whatever he is now, 6'8, 6'9. He was 6'2, 6'3. So, yeah, it's. So, and then you go back in history of, uh, let's say, uh, Kareem Abdul Jabbar. He's in high school, Power Memorial, Lou Alcindor, and he was already, you know, 6'11, 7 foot, and uh, he's a center. Now, he's probably one of the most dominant high school players in the history of the game and most dominant college players and most dominant NBA players. So I'm not saying it affected him, but when you saw him, he was a center. He moved like a center, the sky hook, everything around him, you know. Um, and yet a guy at, during that time was, uh, I can remember when he, when he came over to the Knicks, was Jerry Lucas. Now we know he was an All-American Ohio State and all that other stuff. Jerry Lucas was shooting three-pointers before there was a three-point shot line. That was his whole role in the Nick offense at that time. Yet, you know, he was probably 6'9". Yeah. You know. Um, Rebounding machine, though. Yeah. So in those stories, you know, you're starting to see. Um, here's the flip side. And I know the, the game's different now, but um, whether, whether it's Charles Barkley Adrian Dantley, Dave DeBusher. We're all talking about guys that are 6'5", 6'6". Adrian Dantley might have only been 6'4". You know, uh, they were low post players and phenomenal rebounders. Barkley. Yeah. They say he's 6'6", but there's no way. Yeah. So the thing is, is suppose we said, well, you're only, you're only 6'5". You can't, you can't play down low on the blocks. You can't do this. You can't do that. Right? And in my history of growing up, two of the greatest players that played at uh, Notre Dame, you know, I, people are going to think about my age and immediately think Kelly Trapuca. Yeah, he was, he was a very good player. But the two guys that put Notre Dame on the map as far as beating UCLA and their win streaks and everything was John Shoemate and Adrian Dantley. I bet you Adrian Dantley was 6'4", and John Shoemate was 6'6". And yet they were a dominant inside presence, right? So if someone came along and said, you're 6'4", you're supposed to be a guard, you're not quick enough, you don't have a good enough handle, you know, we're going to, we're not going to, we can't take you here. You know, see how that happens. That's what happens when you put ceilings on things. Yeah. I think it's a great message today. I, I was excited when I got your show notes. I always am. I enjoyed the conversation. I hope our audience did as well. Um, I think it's a good good place to wrap it up, right? Yeah, sounds good. I like it too. But uh, awesome show today. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I encourage our audience to go back and listen to it twice. Take notes. Reach out to Jim. Uh, Jim, remind everybody how they can reach you, get involved with, with you, and and do some, some uh, 
Yeah, the easiest way, you can always send a message through my website, RooneyBaseball.com, R-O-O-N-E-Y, or an email, CoachJim at RooneyBaseball.com. Rooney Baseball is on Facebook. Me as James Rooney is on Facebook. Any of those any of those ways will fit. Um, yeah, questions, anything. Um, you know, I've had people send text messages, and then I get on the phone with them, and we go over some things, and next thing you know, uh, the dad's sending me videos of their son, and then I break down the videos, and we go over some different things to work on. And uh, I do that also. Uh, still hoping for that app for Pitching Kinetics. Kinetics, uh, you know, to keep moving along. Uh, the program up there is doing real well. It's, it's doing so well that uh, we've had initial conversations to broaden it out to 7th uh, and 8th graders because a lot of those 7th and 8th graders are, are, you know, on the horizon to go to high school and different places, and they're already being recruited by some of the prep schools up there in that area. And uh, their parents are continually hammering to see how they can, um, you know, best find a place for their kids to prepare for high school. So that's the initial stages. Um, and uh, we'll see how it goes. Well, I encourage anybody that's listening, reach out 67,000. I don't care what country you're from, reach out to Jim, great wealth of knowledge. And, and just on the side note with Tanner, he's compiling a series of videos for you. I know you had mentioned that with with his catching throwing. So you're, we're, we've got those ready to ship off. He's putting a whole bunch together for you. We appreciate you taking a look at him. Uh, but I encourage any parent that's close to where Jim is or gosh, with social media and, and video, we can do things from anywhere in the world. Reach out to him. Wealth of knowledge. Um, always willing to share. I think that's uh, one of my favorite parts about you is uh, the, you're, you're obviously beyond competent at what you do. And I, I used the word genius early in the show. Uh, but you're so humble and you're always willing to, to, to help somebody. So reach out to them. Uh, don't waste that knowledge out there. And second to our audience, thanks for the support. We love the fact that we got nominated for those two awards. It doesn't drive us, but that's a, it's a nice little little hug to get up to in the morning. Uh, to our sponsors, Jaw Bats, uh, look later in the week for Bonet. Uh, also look for a Kinetic Arm. We're going to do some big things with Kinetic Arm, including some events. So check that out. And to our audience, uh, thanks again. First, uh, this is the first show of a triple header Thursday, followed up with Gavin Lux today of the Dodgers. And we got legendary high school coach down in Broward County. We'll be joining Joe Fazaro on man and second. But with that, this is toe the rubber with Jim Rooney. Jim, thanks so much for a great show today. As always, thank you, Dave. And uh, thank you, audience, for uh, listening for a while. Spot. I slam a game of pool. With a couple of